Welcome to Talk Design. I'm Adrian Ramsey, and with the Architects Marketing Institute, I'm going to bring you 12 special editions. These 12 editions, the architects who are presenting their homes on the Austin AIA Homes Tour. They're all very inspiring, and there's some secret special tips that you'll get towards the end of each podcast. I hope you're as inspired as I am. My guests on Talk Design today are Robert and Lucy from Thought Barn. Now, Thought Barn, I love that name, by the way, is an architectural practice in Austin, and their home um, in Barton Hills is going to be on the AIA Austin Homes Tour this year. This is one not to miss. It's really cool. It's kind of mid-century, and it's kind of more modern than mid-century. So it's mid-century, modern, modern, I'm going to call it. Um, it's really fabulous the way it nestles in the trees. So Lucy and Robert, welcome to Thought Design. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, Adrian. I know how hard it is to make time for these things as well. It's like it's always a bit of a challenge, especially when you're so busy getting something to happen. Um, So thank you. So my first question is going to be, tell us just a little bit about your practice and then also, Lucy, how come you know, your English accent snuck into the uh, Austin landscape. And then also your client and design philosophy for this home. Um, So go for it. Speak first, whoever wants to be first. Sure. Well, Robbie should really speak first because he started the company. Yeah, (laughs) well, you know, in 2007, um, I I started Thought Barn as kind of... um, as a necessity, really, um, I'd kind of gotten laid off from my previous job. And, um, you know, at the time, Austin was coming out of, um, I don't know if it was, there was a crane hold on Austin where things weren't being built in like 2006. And so you started to really see an emerging economy here. And I think Austin's always been really um, supportive of kind of the creative arts and, you know, the creative um building atmosphere. So we kind of just jumped in um, and I started doing really anything um, creative, be it furniture, be it kind of public art projects, be it um, any ways of kind of realizing, you know, creative endeavors. So um, soon thereafter, I asked Lucy if she wanted to kind of move to Austin from where she was going to school at Berkeley at the time. And I convinced her to to come down to Austin and then... um, you know, three years later, um, convinced her to also um, for us to kind of work together um, and develop a practice together and and really make the jump. You know, if we were going to both be doing architecture in Austin, let's be doing it together and let's build um, a body of work that we're really proud of and and that we want to continue to, you know, grow the profession. So that's how I got Lucy here. So, and we're... So you... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so you started in, um, say, 2007, and Austin was, you know, you said it had a crane hold, but then you hit the GFC just after that, the global financial crisis. So you sort of like everything, it was like a perfect storm to start with, <laughs> like or not so perfect. That's true, yeah. Um, that was a good time to be a young practice um, because... 
we didn't have a mortgage and we didn't have kids and we didn't have a lot of overhead. So we were able to be really scrappy with the work that we did and take on a lot of different things where we worked long hours for not a lot of money, but made it work. And it meant that, and honestly, Austin wasn't so badly affected by the recession as a lot of other places. But it also meant that it felt like in 2012, 2013, once Austin was really coming out of that, that we had a good five years of practice under our belt and some built projects and a bit of a reputation emerging. And it felt like we were in a good spot to then be able to capitalize on all the work. Yeah, you'd, you'd pulled through that and then had a platform that was a, actually a stepping off platform, whereas... It could have gone the other way and you could have gone, you know, you could have been doing something completely different if it hadn't happened that way. And you, it takes the fear of um, different things out of the out of your mindset. You go, we did that. We've, we've been there. We've done that. It's like this pandemic we're in now. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, so we, we know to adjust and, you know, we don't fail. We look to thrive, so away we go kind of thing. That's it's, true. And we're, cool. in, we're in an office of seven now um which is a really great size and we have some amazing team members working with us some of who've been with us almost since the beginning so um we've got a really tight team that works really well together nice and so out of the two of you is one the um visionary thinker and the other one the one who uh you know keeps it in line absolutely i'm the visionary thinker (laughs) no (laughs) I'll take that title while I can. You know, the funny thing is, I think we're so complimentary. Uh, I think we're both, you know, both can take those roles. You know, I think we're one's better or not better than the other one. But I think we switch off a lot. We switch roles. I think we're complimentary thinkers. You know, I think our skill sets work well together and we try not to argue too much, but argue just enough um, to make sure that we're getting... um, you know, the best work that we can. And in um, if you've ever come across... We're both very opinionated about design. I think there's pieces of it that one of us will tend to take the lead over the other. Robbie is definitely the one who's really into sort of material systems and details. And when it gets to that part of the project, he's definitely the one um, taking the lead on that. And then on the front end... He'll often work in a very intuitive way, throwing around a lot of ideas to see if they stick. And I'll often be working pretty sort of meticulously in plan to get the organization of the project set. So we have within the sort of task of design, we have a lot of different ways that we feel our way through the process where the balance will change. But there's not one of us who's the designer and one who's the business person. Yeah, right. Yeah. Gotcha. Which is, that's kind of neat because um, it's more, it's even a deeper partnership than, yeah, one of you kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's and the other one, you know, coming up with a story. It um, it means that you're taking those roles. And also it does create a, a, an amount of tension, which um, is healthy. Uh, there's a guy, um, you may have heard of him, he used to be living in Texas, Zig Ziglar. And um, Zig Ziglar used to say, uh, you know, if you're both in a, in a marriage and there isn't um, 
some tension then one of you is probably dead so <laughs> it's like and i think that in, in architecture that's a similar thing in any creative pursuit you know you get yourselves to to or, or you've got to get perspective from somebody and if it's just the client um then that relationship becomes more at risk because um if it but if there's a team of people that are pushing against each other and questioning each other um then it ups the ante, you know. It certainly it's true. Certainly having makes it more fun. Having only run a design business as a partnership, it's really hard to imagine how you would do it any other way, just because of that process that you described, bouncing each ideas off each other and um yeah, working through problems together. I suppose it's possible, yeah. but definitely it's hard for it is. That's what I do. Um, but I do have, you know, a team, and um, they're pretty happy to tell me they think that it's rubbish if they think it is, or that they think that this piece is okay. Or why was I you know, the big? Why are you doing that? Exactly. <laughs> and maybe that's just because nobody else would want to work with me that much. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so why, um, you know, go back to. You, you, you've made this practice, great. You've got your seven, you're in a team, which is really awesome. What's your design philosophy um, and how does it relate to your tour home? That's me. Um, you know, we've always purposefully tried to do a really broad variety of work in terms of type of work. So we are not a firm that specializes in luxury residential work. We're not a firm that specializes in office buildings. We do both of those. And um, we also do, as we talked about a bit, public artwork and in the early days, furniture work as well. Um, I think we like the, the mix because it keeps things interesting. But at the same time, those projects do have a, an approach in common and I think some of that goes back to our early days at the Royal Studio in Alabama, which we can tell you a bit about. But we're always interested in building with an economy of means, um, you know, and doing thoughtful things on a budget is really what defines a lot of our projects. Um, we are always interested in being inventive with ordinary materials, and we're always trying to push the boundaries of what you might expect from a standard palette of materials. Cool. We're always interested in a relationship with place um, and kind of reinterpreting what might be unique or particular to a place in a way that feels kind of continuous with the past, so to speak, but also fresh. And I think this um, house on the tour is a really good example of that. Um, and then, you know, there's a, I think through all of that, there's a sort of strong environmental ethic and a sort of responsibility to place and budget and context that underlines all of that. Cool. And client-wise, are they, how involved, and I know every client's different, of course. In this case, how involved was the client in the decision-making? And also, did they bring, you know, like a bunch of quirky things that were requirements to the home yeah they were they were um really involved they were really a, a great creative couple one is a um a writer and one is a, a technical director um and they were really wonderful to work with they were great partners um they allowed us to also bring um 
fresh ideas to the table and they were kind of encouraging us, you know, to, to really go for it. And I think, you know, as you wish um, with any client, you know, to give you that latitude to, to bring your creativity to the process and also be a great, you know, partner in that creative process. I, mm. We couldn't, you know, ask for um, a greater partner in that process. So, and they also, you know, pushed us in, in terms of like, what we thought about kind of like the interior environment and how, you know, we could, you know, the things that we implemented into the project, how they could bring their own sense of home into the, project, yeah, right. which is, which is hugely important. Right. I mean, we're, you know, we have, uh, you know, we're very fastidious or, you know, we're always trying to make everything clean and, you know, trying to hide, it yeah. and hide all the doors and, you know, so you can't, all these things, no one can figure out how to get into any of the room, you know, <laughs> like, the architectural tricks, you know, abound, but, um, and they really, Button, go ahead. I was, sorry, I was going to say, but um, Barton Baldridge said to me, if you leave me long enough, I'll get a square white box out of it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's a good example. And we're definitely trained in a modernist tradition and, in this idea that the sort of inside and the, the outside of the house are this sort of seem have this seamless relationship with each other and a yeah. limited palette of materials and all this. And so in, in this case, especially where the client comes from a filmmaking, clients come from a filmmaking background, they're big readers, they have a very sort of narrative approach to things and a lot of influences from film and fashion. So mm -hmm. um the interiors, I think, really speak to these elements of sort of surprise and whimsy and pattern and texture awesome. that definitely were driven by the client, you know, and that's part of what will encourage people to do as they walk through the house on the um, 3D walkthrough. Oh, yeah, go on. The films. <laughs> tell me. Is I think. Tell me some of that. Yeah, tell me some of that so that people um, in the audience that are listening, when you're walking through, um, Lucy's going to give us a little journey that tells us some of the hidden items that, or not hidden, um, the things you could easily just pass by. And look, if there were 5,000 people walking through with you, which there would be usually on a weekend, um, this is a, a great opportunity because you can take the time to pause and soak in these things. Yeah. Go for it. Well, I think what there is to enjoy about this house is that in each room, even if it's the guest bathroom when you go in there you'll find something surprising that just looking at the house from the outside you certainly wouldn't have expected and what you'll see is we've got this pretty stark kind of monolithic dark um, exterior that's pretty minimal and um, refined and then when you go into the interiors you get these very playful unexpected moments in the guest bathroom or the office that's the sort of ordinary room in the back with, you know, views out to the fence and a flat ceiling. Um, but working with the client, they found these ways through wallpaper or paint or tile to bring these really fun, unexpected moments to those. And in particular, there's um, what Robbie calls the pinwheel experience of the of the main bathroom that you really have to like turn, you have to turn to the left about four or five times to get to um, this really sort of special experience in the middle of the house that's the main bathroom with a skylight and that's a really sort of different, 
different experience to what yeah, the cool. feels like from the outside. It's like a baptismal font almost. Yeah. I mean, you kind of walk. Yeah, wow. And you kind of, to Lucy's point, you're taking about four left turns and all of a sudden you're presented with this amazing skylit kind of, you know, tiled in bathtub shower room. And, you know, if people can, we'd encourage them to go lay down in the bathtub so you can, you know, look up through that large skylight that's the size of the, of the tub and get your Terrell-esque kind of view of the sky, you know, watch the rain, awesome. you know, all that stuff. So it, it's really... See, that's the kind of thing that uh, on a tour weekend, if you were hopping in the bath and lying down, you'd have some docent telling you it's time to leave. Right. <laughs> or, I don't know if the Matterport tour does that for you. But I don't know whether it does either, but it's going to be one to try for sure. Absolutely. And, and looking for those little quirky um, or, or sensibilities that the clients added with, um, you know, that the, the sort of the rich fabric of film and that kind of stuff, you know, even, even like you often think you go to a movie and let's say you love the movie and you go, oh, well, I will watch it again. You know, you watch it the second time and it's a new movie. You know the story, but the you, you suddenly see the detail in another layer and then you watch it again and you go, oh, I never noticed that before. You know, it, um, it, it's fascinating, you know, on a movie set, just how deep the detail goes. Uh, I've actually got a friend in London who's an architect in London and he did two years of his degree watching 30-second clips of movies and studying the architecture in movies um, and how the light fell on them and stuff like that, which was pretty fascinating. He goes, oh, architecture itself he was fascinated by, but he didn't really enjoy the training. And, and But he, when it became the movie thing, it clicked. And I think, you, you, know, could, so. you know, I think this house really what we tried to do with it is, is kind of set those cinematic views up. I mean, it, I think... Yeah. To your point, I think the way that, you know, an interesting thing would just to be and have try to walk around the house and and notice those views. You know, I mean, I think at every point we're trying we're trying to set up the view through the house to where you're yeah. really bringing that landscape in. So if you're coming out of the guest bathroom, boom, you're looking through the dining room all the way out to the tree, cool. vice versa. You know, if you're in yeah. the hallway, you're kind of looking all the way through the house and. So trying to set up those, you know, relationships that obviously we love to do. And, um, and it, well, especially with such a beautiful site with such beautiful trees on it. Um, and it's quite, it makes it quite intimate with the canopy cover in the site as well. That just uh, the house, well, it's, it's, it's sort of slightly monolithic in the way it's structured and looks in there, but the lines through it. Um, and that's me just going through your photographs on your website. The lines through it are like really beautiful. Like it's like, oh, it reveals this. It shows this. And it, the way you photographed it, it shows those things. It shows that you've set up those views and how the how it sits within its landscape and then becomes a part of it. And I think it's really that was cool. something that we talked with the clients a lot about at the beginning. You know, there was this existing house on it where really – what was everything that was amazing about the site was not experienced in any way from the inside of the house because of the low ceilings and fairly typical windows. Um, so the idea was that in you know lifting the roof and uh, rethinking the windows that you'd really be able to experience the site and the majesty of the trees in all these different ways. So 
I think, like Robbie said, you'll see the big sliding doors that are your sort of traditional big view, but then there's the clear story windows and the skylights that use yeah. up into the trees. And then there's also this layering from the street, which gives you some privacy at the same time as allowing you to see all the way. So there are windows with screens in front of them and behind them. So you get these kind of filtered views through versus the big view. Um, so when really I, when I click my, and, and when I click my access, oh, sorry. You're going. Sorry, go again. Oh, no, there's, there's a lot of the kind of corner windows that you pointed out yeah. to where it's they're pushed to the corner to give you the kind of panoramic view out to yeah. um, the property. I was, I was going to say when I, when I um, you know, click, um, I'm allowed into the tour like the rest of us, um, is there a starting point that um, best sets up the rest of the journey? Like, so, you know, generally, and I don't know how it's going to work with the Matterport either, but generally we get one starting point to a home and that is is that we walk down the, the the front or if we own the home we drive into the garage or into the carport and then we go from that point um in this case um is there it'd be very easy after what you told us about the pinwheel experience just to jump to that um but i imagine and you can tell me if i'm right or wrong at each point where there's a window look for how look for lining yourself up with it from different depths and seeing what's happening with the volumes in the room and then also how that changes as you go towards the window and that starts to come into the space um as it brings the outside in yeah and i think um traditionally i they were they were hoping to keep, kind of keep it a private face to the street you know i think inherently they're they're private people and so i you know, I think this one, this house sets itself up for that traditional kind of walk from the front street. You know, as yep. Lucy was pointing out, you've got this, and you've pointed out this kind of monolithic kind of screening going on. You can't really see what's going on. And then you walk past an, an internal screen and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, well, here it is. You know, here is that, you know, large open space. Here are those view. you know, a multitude of yeah. views like the volumes are, you know, quite substantial, you know, and um, I think that's, that's where we're, I think, cool, someone visiting, well, the, really kind of, the, the tip would be don't rush in. <laughs> it's just take your time to get there and let it evolve as it as it as it comes. Um, because it's going to, you know, architecture should be viewed from both inside out and outside in. You know, it, it should be viewed from both um, because it does. It, it's it's made for the landscape and the and the conditions and stuff, but it's also made for the people that become its fabric inside that make it intimate. You know, people live in houses, not outside houses. Um, so, making a, a point of being able to really experience both on that journey and how it opens up, and sort of like you go into the jewel box, and then it by the sounds of it, it's full of jewels. It's like little pieces, or not little pieces. It's pieces of of story and um, creativity all the way through from that filmmaking experience. Yeah, I oh, it sounds really exciting. You def there's definitely the one big room with the big views that, as you yeah. once you've got through those layers of front door screen sort of is the big moment and so then I think it'll be fun from there to then pull back and go search out the more intimate moments yeah. from from there so 
with it, um, your English heritage, Lucy, how did uh, that influence the project? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not a terrace house, so let's go from there. Well, but you know, the great thing about terrace well, houses. I just want to say, I just want to say that <laughs> people say to me, this reminds me of when people say to me, so what's it like driving on the wrong side of the road? And I'm like, well, just so you know, I've probably spent a total of six months driving in England and I've been driving in the States for 14 years. So <laughs> it's actually a lot more normal for me to drive on the road. On the other side of the road. People say that to me as well when I travel so much and um, I go, it's the same. <laughs> I would love to say that my British design sensibility is in here, but I've practiced for many more years in the States. I will say, though, that we like to think that we're masters of the kind of compact, well-organized footprint because of our time work on terraced row houses. Yeah. Knowing that small bedrooms are possible. and, And even I think it's all... It kind of makes me laugh because we talk about our residential projects typically having compact footprints. But if those, mm-hmm. if we're talking about those to our London peers, they feel this would be a <laughs> massive house if it was in London. But by American yeah. sort of size, absolutely, sort of smaller than average home, and um, so it's all relative. Yeah. But I think in general, our residential projects are tend to be around two to two and a half thousand square feet. So they're not massive. For, yeah. They're not sort of huge for Austin projects, at least Texas projects. So we like to talk a lot about how the room for creativity is in the sort of section of the house as opposed to the square footage. Like to us, square footage is not luxury. Like more more space in the horizontal plane is not luxury or really expensive surfaces are not luxury, but having height and sort of unexpected experiences in the section plane and in the sort of vertical experience of the house um, is to us what we think of as luxury. I think that's a really beautiful point. And, and, and certainly having come from England, like you have, I've lived in England a few times in my life and um, you get to really carefully consider small space. You can't just solve it with, um, I'll just make it a bit wider. Right. <laughs> it's, it's never an option. Yeah. And the, um, right, the British are masters at figuring out how to bring in light in yeah. unexpected ways. Because yeah. you do have so many of those houses, especially terraced, like, homes. Uh, terraced homes, that you're limited in so many ways. So, uh, Yeah, I totally agree. And so that actually creates um, that that constriction creates amazing innovation in actually bringing light into spaces yeah. and into making sure the flow works. It matters whether you go left or right from this point as a predominant point, you know, it, but that matters um, as opposed to it just being a big open space that you kind of wander through. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, like you say, that size home and, and size for size sake, is certainly, um, I see it, but I don't see why people do it. it. Doesn't need to be there. You know, it's all about your needs more than than everything else. That's really cool. Really, really cool. 
Um, and we'll watch out for you on the other side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am really good at a stick shift. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, there's another thing that doesn't happen in America too often. Yeah, the stick shift. So one last question, which is, if um, what, what was the point when you, both of you can answer this, um, when you realized that you were, architecture was for you, this was going to be it, you were going to do this thing, um, you know, I, and you yeah, pursued it. Yeah, I grew up in um, rural Alabama, and, you know, my, my, um, my dad was a paint contractor, so I was always around kind of job sites um, early in my life, you know, working really early, around in my early teens, like 13, painting and, and stuff like that, and you know, and also just being in kind of the woods, you know, more or less. The English call it the countryside. People in rural yep. Alabama call it the woods. Um, and just making stuff and having that kind of, you know, being around a, a maker environment with kind of my family and everything really got me interested in, you know, that approach to kind of life and to a profession. And so, um, you know, the local university happened to be a really good university, um, Auburn University, and and they had a great architecture program, and I just felt like that was kind of what I wanted to do, and um, that's how it kind of started. With, with my so it wasn't like all of a sudden you woke up; it was you just moved in. You just kind of <laughs> right. I moved in. <laughs> they were like you just kept leaning into it, and here you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always say that the reason that Robbie has such a better grasp on construction than me is that he had 18 years head start <laughs> just around workshops and tools and job sure. from well yeah i was and he probably really values that part of it from having a, a time behind a paintbrush trying to cover up everybody else's mistakes absolutely um <laughs> you really value that that those points of it because the finishing trades are always the ones who are left with whatever wasn't done well um, to make look perfect because that's the piece everybody's going to say, well, what happened there? Yeah. And Lucy, how did you end up with this um, in this journey? Um, well, like Robbie, it was a decision that, you know, happened um, sort of right at the beginning of deciding what to do at university. But for me, I hadn't grown up on job sites, but I did grow up drawing a lot and making sort of crafts. Art was a big part of my childhood and what I loved to do. Um, and I actually distinctly remember I didn't have a clear idea of what I would study at university. I, art didn't seem quite sort of serious enough, but I didn't want to do something as sort of ordinary as English. And I picked up a book of college courses I can still remember this I opened it and there was a and then some it said architecture and I was like huh but I didn't know any architects growing up and um no one had talked to me about that as a career path um up until you know sort of discovering that for myself but it as soon as I saw that written down it totally clicked and um haven't looked back I wonder what would have happened if you picked up the book and started at the back. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you might be a zebra by now. Exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. That's really cool because it's something that at that moment was, oh, hold on. 
That's something that hadn't come into the realm yeah, of my thinking. It sounds a bit cheesy, but it really is true. <laughs> I was like, that sounds yeah. cool. And then I went to my first end of year show at a university and I was like, people get to do this in university? I didn't really sort of know, understand what the studio environment was or right. really what you did when you studied architecture. But as soon as I got exposed to it, it was absolute sort of love at first sight. I think residential architecture and design is probably one of the most humbling and um, special things that you can do because people are trusting you with their home and their money and you do these pictures on a bit of paper that turn into this thing that they actually live in <laughs> and it will affect their quality of life in every way that they can be and every possible way that will affect their quality of life and it's such a when you when you think of the weight of the responsibility it's um it's so fabulous it's such a beautiful thing to be trusted to you know get it right to to get them right and then to get the the building right as well absolutely i love this i love the house i, I think it's absolutely fabulous so when people are touring Take the time to experience it as you walk in and let it unfold and then start looking around for those pieces where the clients have brought all that fabric and um, texture into the journey and then do not miss the bathroom and keep turning left. Just go left, left, left and lie down in the bath if we can do that. Ingrid, if we can't do that, next year we'd like to be able to lie in a bath, please. Um, <laughs> that would be really cool. Guys, absolutely fabulous, um, and thank you for making time. Um, so looking forward to seeing the house. Are you doing some uh, webinar stuff as well? We are. Over the yeah. weekend? We um, are at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, and we hope to share um, a lot of fun insights into that, uh, what we're calling the collaborative friction between us and the clients. Oh, I love that. I'd hate to think what time I have to get up for that, but anyway, we'll work on that. Probably Saturday, <laughs> right? Yeah, that will be. I've already said to my wife, don't count on me for a lot of weekend. <laughs> so, guys, thank you, and I look forward to seeing the house on tour, um, and I look forward to catching up when I'm in Austin next year. Hopefully I get there next year, but if they let us start travelling out of Australia again. Um, it's more of not travelling out. We can get out. It's coming back. That's the the tougher part um coming home means uh, at the moment that we're 14 days of quarantine so right. lockdown somewhere so thank you so much and have an amazing weekend thank yeah. you for um, the opportunity adrian this thank was really you adrian fun. great to talk likewise look forward to meeting you there okay take care Bye. cheers Bye. richard's magic arrows is brought to you by the architect marketing institute Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking 
say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.